you're not talking about someone in chronological order. It's not, you know, like their memoir or their biography where you start with birth and end with death. You know, you're you're zeroing in on the thing or things that made that person noteworthy. Welcome to Newhouse Impact, a collaboration between WAER and the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse University. I'm Kevin Kloss, and each week I sit down with faculty, staff, and students from the Newhouse School to discuss some of the great work being done at Syracuse University. This week, we're speaking with Eric Grody. Amongst other things, Eric has spent time writing obituaries for the New York Times. We get into the technical and logistical aspects of writing an obituary, and Eric shares some of his lessons learned along the way. Let's jump in. Eric Grody, thanks for stopping by today. I appreciate it. Not at all. Thanks for having me. So I think traditionally, if we kind of looked at what someone would expect when they were told that someone writes for a living, maybe traditionally we think newspaper, uh, maybe we think uh, scripts for entertainment, but you, you've kind of carved out a little bit of an area that is a little off the radar, and that's writing obituary specifically with the New York Times Talk to me about how you got to that point in your career. You know, I write about various things at the Times. Obituaries aren't the only thing I cover. Um, And there is a whole desk there that's devoted to they're there on call for when, you know, there's breaking news, someone unexpectedly dies. Um, They're there to write that. My role in my niche that I've chiseled out for myself there at the Times is to work on what we call advanced obituaries. And these are typically people who are older Um, and they've had an illustrious enough career that we know that we're going to want to have an obituary of them, Um, and I just get assigned to do it well before, hopefully, well before um, it needs to be published. And so that was something that I was working for the Culture Desk um, at the Times, writing about theater and film and music and other things, and once or twice I got calls for more like what I described as the first one. Um, Someone had passed away that they were sort of ill-prepared for, and would you be willing to put something together quickly? Um, And so I did that, and it went well enough, I guess, that then they started saying, you know, would you mind taking a crack? We have this list of people who we're going to want to run an obituary for at some point, and do you want to just plug away at those in advance? So I said, sure. So you sort of admitted the Times was a little unprepared for someone passing away and they had to pull you in. Did you feel equally unprepared to, to write that first obituary? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's a huge uh, responsibility. I mean, this is what how the way people will remember them, mm-hmm. right? you know, a lot, not their friends and loved ones, obviously, but people who are sort of coming in off the street. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big undertaking to try to encapsulate a life, in many cases, a long life in just a few hundred words. Now, when we think foundationally about writing, you know, there's certain things that I think everyone who goes through either high school English or some level of college hears, uh, show, don't tell, inverted pyramids, things like that. Are there different foundations when you're writing an obituary that you kind of have to train your mind to organize things differently? Yeah, and I actually went back and looked at some of my edits that I got. It's a, There's a learning curve with it, and different places do it in different mm-hmm. ways, but you're not talking about someone in chronological order. It's not, you know, like their memoir or their biography where you start with birth and end with death. You know, you're you're zeroing in on the thing or things that made that person noteworthy. Um, and sometimes that's one very specific thing, but usually it's not. Usually it's a handful of things they did over the years and decades. 
And the first half or so of the piece is really diving into the one, two, or slightly more than two things that are noteworthy about them and contextualizing it and helping explain why they mattered. Um, and then you kind of double back and say, all right, now here's this person once I was born in this town on this date to these parents. Um, and then you make your way a little more chronologically. But it is, it's is—it's very much a bifurcated um, first why this person deserves to be listed, you know, in the obituary section. And with the advanced obituaries, which, as you said, is really what you tend to focus on, sitting here, I think that Perhaps sourcing on that could be something that's a little bit delicate, shall we say? I assume you don't call someone up who is maybe perfectly alive and in good health and tell them that you're working on their obituary. Well, um, you don't put it in quite so many words, Mm -hmm. as I found out. Um, But yeah, if they're game, uh, you call them up. And the very first time, I don't remember, it wasn't quite as... (laughs) as tactless as he just did it there, but it wasn't far off. It was pretty close to that. Basically, hi, I'd like to interview for your obituary. What, click. Like, you know, that that's a pretty quick phone call. They, they hung just, up they on They hung him. up, yes. So I asked, hey, what am I doing wrong? And they said, well, maybe don't use the word obituary. Just say, just an, an, uh, an interview that we can keep in our archives. Um, and the next person who I did that with saw right through. They knew exactly why I was talking to them because this is someone who had been noteworthy decades earlier, but really had been out of the public. I wasn't calling him for the newest, latest topical mm-hmm. thing that he was doing. Uh, he was like, is this for my obituary? And I said, well, just, just an interview to kind of keep on file for our archives. And he got it, and we talked, and we had a great conversation, and it really helped for the obituary. Obviously, at the beginning, there were probably some struggles, like the one you just <laughs> mentioned. Are there other ones you can think of where, when you think back on them, you go, oh, this was really challenging for one reason or another? Is there one that maybe stands out? I mean, once or twice. So the hope is that these are being read by a wide readership. It's not just people who are very into theater, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, I have typically found that I'm someone who grew up working as a theater critic. I wrote a ton about theater. I have a lot of, I think, I like to think I have a lot of knowledge at my fingertips about it. But it also means that I can be in a little bit of a fishbowl. And so I will get deep into the weeds if I'm fortunate enough to talk with the person or if I'm doing research. Um, I actually find the ones that, I've, are, that are most challenging for me are the ones where I have the most direct connection to the person mm-hmm. and the person's work because I have to remind myself that not everyone is going to care as much about the minutia as I do. So I've had more success, I think, when I'm writing about people like jazz musicians or old sitcom actors or people like that who I have a little bit of distance from and can kind of more easily replicate what a lay reader would really want to know about that person. You mentioned the minutiae, so I'll just ask, do you want to put some of that in there, though? Does some of the minutiae make its way in there, or do you try to basically strip that out as much as you can? No, I mean, minutiae is a slightly loaded term, and it's mm-hmm, the one sure. I use. But I mean, what you're really talking about there are like factoids or mm-hmm. the kind of things that are, you know, if you're writing a profile of a living person, you take note of the pictures on their desk or their body language or the, or the little quirky things that help it spring off the page a little bit. So that's that's no less important for someone who's not with us anymore. Um, so, you, I mean, you do want to be able to find and pull out the stuff that will kind of help the life pop a little bit more. But that said, there is a word count for these things. You can't just go on and on and on and on. And there's not always a fixed word count. You know, the more illustrious the career was, the more space they tend to get, mm-hmm. as it should be. Um, 
but yeah, if you're if if you're not careful, you can find yourself in the weeds. So from the point where someone comes to you and says, "Hey, Eric, we need you to write an obi- uh, advanced obituary mm-hmm. on fill in the blank," to the point where you are turning, you know, maybe in a final version of it, maybe it's gone through an edit. What's the timeline on that? How long do you think it takes you from assignment to completion? Well, typically, knock on wood, um, you've got as much time as you need. It's mm-hmm. not like the person's on his or her deathbed or whatever. Um, they don't need it right away. I mean, I will say if someone has just passed away, like then the clock really is ticking because mm-hmm. you want to get it out fast. Um, two, three weeks usually. You know, I'm, I'm doing research on the person. Even if I've talked to the individual, you know, we've all had elderly relatives that we've sat and heard stories from. And, you know, a fact-checking department probably, you know, they're great stories. They're Mm -hmm. stories that person's told for a long time. It's usually not a bad idea to trust but verify and go back and make sure that these things happen how they remember it happened. And so, yeah, you you also make sure the fact you don't you don't want to run corrections in an obituary. You also mentioned the final version. There is usually because, like I said, it's in advance and there is Mm -hmm. some time. I'll usually get the call or an email late at night on a weekend or whatever at a time when I don't have a story in the hopper for the times. And what I I usually know what that means is, you know, an obituary that I wrote six months ago or nine years ago in one case has finally, you know, come to the point where it needs to run. And so so what you're doing there is you're looking and it's often it says, you know, she is survived by her spouse, children, grandchildren, et cetera. If enough time has gone by, you actually need to verify that those names and that information is correct too. Did you tell me you wrote an advanced obituary that wasn't it sat on the shelf basically for nine years? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, a guy who um was the uh, star of an old cop show called Mannix. Um, and I totally forgot that I'd written it. It had been, like I said, it had been almost a decade, and then it just went up again. I had a guy, this wasn't, I didn't write this, but a paper I used to work at, um, Hoboken, New Jersey, was in its readership area. And, you know, one of the favorite sons of Hoboken was Frank Sinatra. Mm-hmm. Frank, Frank Sinatra lived to a ripe old age, and there was a person who I worked with whose job was to reach out every year, once a year, to all the people who were quoted in the obituary as having seen Frank perform as a boy wonder at this club on Washington or, you know, like whatever. Um, and he would call them up and they were always happy to talk to him and tell him some stories, usually the exact same stories they told him the year before. The minute that they picked up the phone and said hello, his work was technically done. All he really needed to do was verify that all the people being quoted in this obituary were themselves still alive. Um, and then once he was done, technically, but he was a nice guy and he was happy to just sit and hear the old stories that year as well. You know, as I think more and more about the, the legacy of some of the people that you guys are writing about when you do these advanced obituaries, you know, you might not think of it in terms of uh, pressure because you've got these hard deadlines like with breaking news or something like that. But I have to imagine there's a good amount of pressure behind the fact that, you know, you, you're writing what some people will remember icons for when they read those obituaries. Mm-hmm. I, I think so. And in part of what that is, I mean, there's a lot of factors with that. But for example, people have had complicated lives in a lot of cases. Not everything mm-hmm. that they've done is stuff that they would necessarily want to see in the in the paper. Sure. But if you're really writing the full account of someone's life and if that life does include lawsuits or jail mm-hmm. time or accusations or things like that, you need to find space for that. You also need to contextualize it as 
you know, that is takes up the amount of space of when you think about this person's life in totality, that is part of it. You don't want to minimize it, but you also don't want to maximize it. And I've learned over time, you know, people people's thinking evolves in terms of how much that's an important part of that person's legacy. Have you ever gotten negative feedback? Perhaps you write an obituary and someone's not a fan of the way you've categorized someone's life. Uh, have you ever heard from a reader in terms of a negative reaction or not really? Well, the main person who would complain. Correct. <laughs> you Understood. You don't hear from that person. Right. Um, you hear from family members sometimes. I've been fortunate. I mean, for the most part, mm -hmm. people are, are appreciative. Um, and again, so recently when Stephen Sondheim passed away, he's an, a giant within yep. the theater world. And I didn't write the obituary, the main obituary, but I was one of the team that came on and worked on some of the sort of ancillary material. Um, you know, that person, of course, he's going to be eulogized and remembered mm -hmm. in the Times. It's usually sort of the, the more on the cusp people that it wouldn't necessarily be a given and, you know, I, it wasn't me who made that decision in the first place. You know, I was assigned the obituary. But usually it's like, oh, good. We were hoping that there would be one last mention of this person in the in the New York Times. You know, there's that saying, I think it's a Native American saying, you know, every time an elder dies, a, a library burns to the ground. Um, and it's sort of our hope that we can just, at least the way I think of it is, you know, you're just kind of running in and grabbing a few books out of there before before it goes. You had mentioned earlier that uh, you had taken some time to look at some of the earlier obits that mm -hmm. you had written. When you look at some of that past work and now obviously actively doing work in the present, are there things that are that strike you as, oh, wow, I've really come a long way in terms of improving in a certain area or picking up nuance in a certain area? Is there anything that really strikes you when you look at that past work? That's a good question. I guess the – like I mentioned the totality. Mm -hmm. um, Early on, I think I could get a little hung – not hung up on, but little things that I didn't know about that person. Um, I sort of assumed other – everyone else didn't know about it too. Right. And so as I've gotten a little older and you know, just gotten to know the field a little bit more, I think that context has, has become more intuitive to me that I can just say, yes, that thing matters, but probably not as much as these other two things. Um, and I think early on I was very achievement focused. You know, if you if you'd gotten the Oscar or the Pulitzer or the Nobel or something like that, would be what would lead off. I mean, people like Tony Kushner, the playwright, has joked that like the minute you win the Pulitzer, you just you know the, the mm -hmm. first line of your obituary is going to be. And he's not wrong. Like that is that is in there, um, but that is just one thing, usually in a very very long life. And finally, if there was someone who's kind of just hearing this and things that's very interesting, you know, the work that you get to do with those advanced obituaries. Do you advice you give people who maybe, you know, are thinking about this or, or advice you would wish you had could have given yourself a number of years ago? Well, I haven't assigned obituaries in a, in you know, I teach a lot of writing classes mm -hmm. here at here at Newhouse and we don't assign people obituaries because that's kind of impossible to do. But I mean, the 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 larger ideas, the, this idea that, you know, a life is really full with a lot of things that are obvious and, and some things that are maybe not so obvious, you know, I just would counsel people to 
try and dig deeper. And this is no less true if you're profiling a living person to just, yes, focus on the the signposts, you know, the things that got you into that room in the first place to talk to them. But that's usually just the, the tip of the tip of the iceberg in terms of what you might want to write about. All right. Eric Grody, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to Newhouse Impact, a collaboration between WAER and the Newhouse School at Syracuse University. Our associate producer is Emma Hudson. And a special thanks to Dr. Regina Luttrell, Associate Dean of Research and Creative Activity. Find more from the department at newhouse.syr.edu research. You can find more about this podcast at waer.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. I'm Kevin Kloss. Thanks for listening.